Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to Things Observed. And today we have on a very special guest, John Brisson, who is the author of the We've Read the Documents substack. He has a Twitter account by the same name. You may know him from his appearances on the Farm Podcast with Recluse. I've listened to quite a few of those, and I'm a big fan. And I've also checked out his podcast that he um, is a co-host, I believe, on recently, the By Their Fruits podcast. He is a naturopathic author, a health coach, and an investigative journalist. You can also check out some of his other work on www.fixyourgut.com. And I'm very excited to be discussing some of his work on the Finders operation with him. And we might even get into a couple other subjects aside from this. But I think that his work on the Finders is, in my opinion, in a whole different league from the rest of the work I have seen on the subject. But anyways, I'm very excited to have him on. So, John, how are you doing today? Doing well, Luke. Uh, Glad to be here on you, uh, here with you, should I say, on the Things Deserve podcast. Um, Glad to be here. Uh, Things are doing well. Um, And yeah, I mean... um, I, as far as the fighters goes, I don't like to toot my own horn very much about this. There are many other people who've done research as well, like Derek Bros, uh, for example, uh, and George from CavDev.org. Shout out to George um, that have done research on the finders. Um, Nick Bryan as well in his brief passage and his um, uh, his book on the Franklin scandal. Um, but yeah, I I I, I think I am carrying the torch for the uh, research uh, into the finders operation and have, um, you know, gone in depth more through interviews of people uh, that were investigating the finders or interviews of various people related to the finders uh, and, you know, uncovered some documents and posted some documents that previously were not seen beforehand. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate the kind words very much. Uh, I still kind of get embarrassed <laughs> any, anytime anybody mentions that. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I guess I guess I am the, the, the foremost researcher to the finders, uh, you know, at least in the modern times. Uh, but you know, it's, it's something that I found quite interesting and, uh, I'm still continuing researching and writing my book to this day. Yeah, that's awesome. So how's the book coming along? I've heard you mention that you're writing a book on the subject, so that's awesome. Uh, I got about 200 plus uh, pages in roughly about 85,000 words. Of course it needs to be edited obviously after I am done writing it. Uh, it's been a slog, uh, that is for sure. Not that I haven't enjoyed writing it. I have, but, uh, I get hangups and writer's blocks as an INTP and that I want the book as completely perfect as I possibly get. So if I reach a point where I've ran out of exhausting, uh, new information to find, I kind of have to put it to a side and, and come back and, and start again later. And it's very exhausting when it comes to that because it takes me forever to actually write something. <laughs> Uh, but you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm trying, it's been years. Uh, hopefully it will be out before, uh, the good Lord takes me home. Uh, but, um, you know, in the event that it is not, I've given my information to George from cavdev.org and hopefully even though he is an INTP, he could eventually finish it as well. Uh, but you know, I, I, it's something, uh, hopefully that maybe Lord willing, it'll be out next year. I hope, hope so anyway, Luke. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I am going to be looking forward to reading that when the time comes. But yeah, that's 
that's super cool. I think it would be awesome one day. I have no idea what the subject would be, but to write a book, that's something that's kind of on the bucket list, but I might be an INTP myself. I can definitely, uh, obsess over things and want to get every little thing just just perfect so i can definitely see how that would be quite the task especially with a subject like the finders where there is just so much um so much of which just from reading through your Substack and stuff i just had no idea about and a lot of preconceived notions that i had from what i had seen about the finders were just completely destroyed and uh so you know it's it's been kind of uh it's been a good thing though because i'm definitely getting a more in-depth understanding and so if unless you have a better idea of what a good place to start with maybe a good place to start with talking about the finders would be marion petty because i don't know how you could really talk about the finders without talking about him so could you tell us just you know a little bit about his early life and about his um experience in the military and uh, being a chauffeur for the elites and what have you? Yeah. So um, Marion David Petty, uh, I believe, was the head outside of the elite in the various agencies involved with the finders operation, whether it's United States Central Intelligence Agency, United States um, Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, the United States State Department, uh, maybe the Israeli Mossad, um, that that were involved uh, with the finders operation. Um, he was the at least the figurehead of the operation in of of itself. Um, and he uh, there's a lot of mysticism around his early life, and we don't really know. <sighs> we don't really know what's true <laughs> and what's you know fabricated. Uh, but I've done my best to try to to um, verify through various sources, whether it's Toby Terrell's book, which Toby Terrell, Robert Gardner Terrell Jr. was a member of the Finders, his book, The Game Caller, whether or not what was written in that book was entirely correct or through interviews that Marion Petty has uh, given throughout the years, whether it's to Lynn Bracken and Ken Thomas or Eddie Dean. Um you know, what could we separate uh, fact uh, from fiction? Um, now, I do know that, you know, Marion Petty uh, grew up in the uh, Nethers, Virginia, Culpeper, Virginia area. That is where he is from. Uh, we can go back and look through um, Social Security records and uh, various, um, you know, gravesite memorials and... Um, uh, obituaries of his family to be able to determine to that's where when he uh, the area that he grew up and that he was born on December uh, 12th uh, 1920 um, and so uh, he had a brother uh, um, and his brother um, also later would be a chauffeur that he would get uh, his uh, uh, chauffeur uh, job uh, for his brother. His brother was also a detective after he came out of the um, military and was later uh, killed uh, during a raid of, of a house. Um, and so his brother, I, if I remember his name correctly, I think it was Russell Petty. Um, so he would join the U.S. Army, uh, just like his brother Marion. Uh, and what also I found was chauffeuring uh, some people, which I'll name some of the people that Marion Petty would later chauffeur as part of the U.S. Army Air Corps. 
Um, and so, um, you know, a little bit of uh, uh, Petty's early life seemed to be uh, relatively normal for a child during that time period. His, his parents uh, seemed to be uh, stereotypical Southern country uh, you know, uh, parents, um, they, you know, didn't seem to be anything completely out of the, um, ordinary for him. Um, we do know that he, um, with uh, some of his youth, uh, when he was a child kind of formed a club where they would go grave digging, um, and that they had, uh, uh, dug up a skull that they would use, uh, and kind of put it, you know, around their sitting circle, their inner circle, which that later skull would be uh, used by Petty uh, for the same thing with members of the finders operation. So that's a little bit, macro, you know, uh, kind of, I don't, lack of the better words, kind of um, dark, I guess. <laughs> you know, that even as a child that he was doing something like that. You know, goes a little um, bit beyond just like normal country boy hijinks, I would say. Just a little bit beyond that, you know, digging skulls out of graves. But anyways, go on. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Yeah, I definitely would say that. Yes. But, you know, he for all intents and purposes, it does seem to be kind of he did seem to kind of have a normal childhood as far as his parents, his family's concerned outside of that. Um, and so, um, you know, I mean, some, I guess, you know, I, some people could say it's kind of, uh, <sighs> macabre in a lot of ways, because, you know, I, I think of Petty, when he wrote about it, he was talking about that the skull kind of just reminds you of one's mortality, uh, seeing it, you know, um, which I mean, yeah, I, I guess the true fault, it's a purposes, but when you're a child, uh, this usually the last thing in, in you know, on your mind is, is your mortality, um, and so, uh, around the ninth grade, he quit school and joined the United States army. Uh, he had his parents forge, help to forge his documents. What he did was he left a newspaper clipping out on his parents' dining room table, uh, during breakfast of a boy whose parents had not given him what he wanted. So his boys killed, um, uh, their father. As kind of a threat. So his parents ended up, you know, were kind of like shocked and they're like, fine, you want to go to, you know, go join the military, go join the military. So, uh, you know, that, that's supposedly allegedly what happened. Um, and, uh, you know, Petty supposedly lost his virginity at 13, kind of like a possible brownstone operation in Pens on Pennsylvania Avenue around Fifth Street in Washington, D.C., um, and, uh, Petty's also mentioned that he, uh, has wanted sex twice a week since the age of 13, uh, or so has been the optimum amount for him. And actually not to be too graphic later in an interview, uh, Petty would state that he preferred a uh, young pussy over old pussy. Uh, and so, uh, we guess we can kind of see the, uh, trend, uh, continuing there, um, of the, you know, so-called sex trafficking and pedophilic allegations of the, uh, members of the finders operation. Uh, you know, I have no substantial, substantial evidence that Marion Petty in of himself, um, uh, molested any children. Uh, but we do know, um, that there was one later, uh, finders member, um, Theodore, uh, Gerald Reese was convicted, uh, in his, I want to say his eighties, um, for containing, uh, files on his computer for child pornography. 
which happened uh, last decade during the 2010s. He was actually convicted for it. Um, and so, you know, as far as the fighters are concerned, I don't make any allegations of who knew what. It was a very compartmentalized operation or who was involved with what. Um, but, you know, I can make the statement since he was convicted that there, you know, Theodore Gerald Reese, uh, is a pedophile. He is a, uh, you know, convicted, uh, pedophile. Um, and he was a member of the finders, um, you know, even before the 1987, uh, Tallahassee incident. Um, and so, you know, Petty joined, uh, the, the military, uh, he joined the United States army. Uh, he was later stationed in Panama, um, and you know he loved the, the supposedly the military base in Pan Panama, and, and would um, read every book that he could get uh, his hands um, and get his hands on. Um, and then uh, later um, started to uh, purchase apartments uh, during World War II um, to kind of have open houses for military people and intelligence officers to kind of like rent whenever necessary that they need to stay in DC and then for them to leave. And supposedly he got these, um, the money to be able to buy this property from winning poker games when he was in the United States Army Air Corps, which I do not believe it. The investigative leads memo, which I've done my best to try to verify, uh, alludes to that, you know, he had a relationship with George, uh, uh, um, uh, it was, uh, Charles Edward Marsh and Charles Edward Marsh, uh, was kind of like a, um, he owned a whole bunch of newspapers. He's very rich for holding, uh, and, and also, uh, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson had an affair with, um, Marsh's wife, Alice. And, um, uh, Petty became friends with Charles Edward Marsh. Uh, he met him at the National Press Club uh, through a, a gentleman named uh, Joseph Cheng Sr., uh, who was a Jesuit-trained uh, Chinese gentleman who lived in the United States, who uh, uh, Petty uh, met through uh, wanting to learn martial arts in, in the late 90s, I mean the late uh, the 30s, the 1930s. Um, and, uh, and so, um, Marsh gave Petty the money to buy the land, uh, in Virginia, near Nethers, Virginia, known as the Free State, and, uh, the apartment complexes that he was keeping as open houses to intelligence officers and to military officials. Um, even though Petty and the game caller said, tells Toby Terrell, I, I was just really good at gambling. I was just gambling my chauffeur paychecks to buy all these, you know, hundreds of acres of land and all these apartment buildings, you know, Luke, which is completely ludicrous if you really think about it. Uh, you know, and so um, Petty, I guess, in, in, in closing some of his early uh, time, uh, you know, he became a, a chauffeur in the Army Air Corps. Supposedly, um, it's because um, he gave a car to his friend, Bruce Simmons, who was a chauffeur for Henry Hap Arnold, who was the United States Army Air Corps a general, and who would drive around Arnold. Uh, Simmons, uh, you know, talked to Arnold about hiring Petty as chauffeur, which supposedly, uh, you know, uh, Petty uh, later was hired by Arnold. Um, and author Lynn Bracken also mentioned that Petty would describe himself as a veritable man in black, saying he was a chauffeur for a general, wore a civilian suit, and carried a gun. 
and we know through um, various uh, military records and um, newspaper clipping about his brother um, and uh, um, as well as from the investigative leads memo and from Toby Terrell's book, The Game Caller, uh, that Marion Petty drove around a certain uh, high up uh, elitists, uh, such as such as George Marshall, who's former United States Secretary of State, George S. Patton, former United States Army uh, General, especially during World War II, General Ira Aker, former United States Air Force General during World War II, G. Edgar Hoover, uh, former United States FBI Director, uh, as well as he also drove supposedly uh, Harry S. Truman, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and Lyndon Baines Johnson. That is quite the list of people. And it, you, I mean, it's very easy for one's mind to kind of uh, draw possible conclusions from that. Um, just the type of dirt that someone could learn from being one's chauffeur. And I'm right with you on the gambling story. I've long been suspicious of uh, lots of, I mean, even like some of the professional gamblers and the lifestyles that they uh, lead like there's this guy who's a big influencer named Dan Blazarian who's been on all these different shows who's like uh, you know always posting himself with tons of young women flying in private jets and he claims it's all from his gambling winnings and there's just something so suspect about that but anyways that is a very good introduction into who Marion Petty is okay so now that we know a little bit about Petty, can you tell us of how he goes from being, you know, this chauffeur to presidents and top level generals and all these different powerful people to kind of how the finders finds their genesis and kind of the beginning of the finders operation? So supposedly um, Charles Marsh wanted Marion Petty to be trained in counterintelligence. Uh, so Petty uh, went to uh, Georgetown University, which is Jesuit college, and received intelligence training there and later uh, was sent to uh, United States Air Force Intelligence Training School in Frankfurt, Germany uh, during the mid-1950s. Uh, and um, so they kind of wanted him to pivot from being a chauffeur to being more of a, a intelligence asset. Okay. And, um, and so the story that Petty tells in the game caller is he goes up to an, an alleged unnamed, uh, military colonel who I believe is the United States Air Force Colonel Leonard N. Uh, Wegner, uh, who also worked for the United States Central Intelligence Agency and went up to him and he was like, I want out of the military. Um, I want an honorable discharge, um, you know, I, I'm being tell, told uh, to be um, an intelligence asset. And supposedly that was granted. Uh, and we do know through the um, Washington, D.C., um, kind of there was a, a memo that was leaked uh, that had, had, had uh, listed the um, dates of stamps of Marion Petty's passport when they were riding back and forth, uh, the United States Metropolitan Police to the um, United States State Department, that he had stamps in his passport from the early as the 1950s to the USSR, uh, North Korea, 
uh, and China. Um, and so, you know, that was very interesting for him to be able to go to those countries, um, you know, you know, during the various wars, during, um, uh, kind of the cold war too, as well. And later, uh, the foundation of the cold war is very interesting that he was able to, and even Toby Terrell talks about in the game caller 1980s, that he was sent on an assignment or a game by Marion Petty to go through Russia or USSR at the time. Uh, and so, you know, that it's very quite interesting that Petty, um, you know, had that amount of privilege that just the average person uh, would not have, right? Let alone even maybe the average intelligence asset. Um, so, you know, that it seems to me uh, that that's what was granted to him because they were able to trust him and found him extremely knowledgeable and intelligent and a great manipulator when he was chauffeuring all these bigwigs around. Uh, that was kind of his reward was to start the finders operation, uh, which would be roughly around the mid sixties, sometime around that time period, uh, that he was, um, activated as an intelligence agent, uh, to begin to get a group of, uh, kooks, if you will. Uh, you know, of the behest of the United States Central Intelligence Agency and the United States Military Industrial Complex, uh, maybe the Israeli Mossad, to infiltrate and control the counterculture movement. Now, see, that's one of the things that I found the most interesting about your um, series of articles that you have on your Substack, and all of that, and along with all your other work, will be link down below so people can go check it out. And I highly recommend that people do go check it out. But I had always been under the assumption that the finders operation was, you know, not that it necessarily wasn't, but that it was kind of limited to being this, you know, blackmail child trafficking type, uh, you know, uh, group cult that was linked to intelligence agencies. So could you tell us just a little bit about how they did kind of function as a vehicle in which to steer the counterculture and maybe also just a little bit about how that kind of pairs with the typical view of the finders operation in alternative media spheres? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I believe that the way the finders operated was... Um, you had Marion Petty, who likely had certain orders that came from United States intelligence agencies or the military industrial complex or foreign governments or the State Department. And some of the stuff they just allowed him to gather intelligence or, you know, uh, to dis 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 to uh, bring intelligence to them or to disseminate and create chaos because he was kind of like a chaos magician, in my opinion, as well, a chaos agent. So, you know, they kind of, you know, within the boundaries, right? Sometimes he had to be reined in, obviously, as most uh, intelligence uh, operatives have to be. But they also gave him some freedom, too, as well, of, of what he was allowed to do within reason uh, to accomplish their goals, right? So one of their main things that it seemed to be the case, uh, which I spent a good part of my book and something with very high confidence i do believe to be true was that marion petty was to infiltrate the counterculture movement to set himself up 
with various uh, counterculture figures, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, Dick Dabney or Norman Mailer or Barbara Marks Hubbard or Carl Schleichler or, uh, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, Michael Versace's Rios or uh, Ed Elkin or Carl Shapley or Robert Schwartz. Um, I mean, the list goes on. Like I consider a name, <laughs> you know, Mildred Loomis, like I could name Ken Keyes Jr. Like I could name so many people, <laughs> you know, off the top of my head, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that he was involved with. Um, and there's probably more that we don't even know, you know? So, you know, th- you know, through the various, um, you know, parts of the counterculture movement, whether it was, um, the beat generation, whether it was 1960s and 1970s drug culture, whether it was um, the human potential movement, whether it was Esalen Institute, whether it was um, the school of living, you know, like he would either, he was known by almost everybody, but very, very rarely talked about, you know, so he would either send somebody off in a game to gather information about said person of what they were up to, uh, whether or not that they could become a member of the finders or work with the finders or become an intelligence asset or be, you know, valuable to the various intelligence agencies or the military industrial complex, or, you know, um, maybe kind of steer them in a certain direction uh, through uh, certain actions that the finders would do for a person, whether it's to, you know, work or help them out with a specific task that they need or a monetary gift. For example, he gave Patch Adams allegedly the money to start his Gesundheit Institute, uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, Barbara Harbor was also, I mean, um, uh, Marion Petty was a founding member of the World Future Society with Barbara Marks Hubbard. Um, and so, um, you know, it seemed to be that that seemed to be the case was he would either go do these things himself or find someone within the fighters inner circle and give them a game for them to go do these things. That's what Toby Terrell writes up right about in his book in the game caller. Uh, you know, and that's who Marion Petty was. He was the game caller. He was a leader. You know, he was the caller of games. He would tell a person, okay, I need you to go. I need you to go. Um, you know, I need you to go to San Francisco and for two weeks, gather information on this person and find us a place to stay, you know? So it'd be stuff like that. And, um, it's just interesting of how much, how broad the connections that Marion Petty had with these various people, um, and the control that he had of these various people. It's just, you know, and the, if you read the game caller, you know, they called him the stroller too. He'd, you know, he'd walk, he'd be everywhere. He would just show up out of nowhere most of the time, right? And he was able to, and, you know, military people are able to do this, um, former military people. He was able to, you know, hop on to a military flight for nothing, right? And he would do that quite often. Now, an average military person I don't think would be able to get into the USSR during the cold war. <laughs> you know, it was a little bit different, you know, but he would do something like that, you know? So, you know, that's what they, they were having him doing is he was very charismatic. Some people thought he was not that smart. I think he was, um, you know, maybe to, you know, to some people he could kind of, uh, 
throw them off by not acting as smart as he actually was, right? And to other people, he could be highly intelligent. Uh, you know, he, he would he would do whatever he needed to do uh, to gain an in with whomever he needed to, to, to gain an in with. Um, and I think Marion Petty was, you know, very good at that. He was very good of trying to manipulate whoever was around him. I mean, as the finders, though, I think of an operation, it was very much a cult, too. And Marion Petty was a cult leader for all intents and purposes. Um, and, 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 and so, yeah, I mean, the, the finders were, you know, able to get millions upon millions of dollars, allegedly, and, you know, properties all around the world that they had owned. Um, you know, various, you know, warehouses and, and, and apartments and, you know, and, and it wasn't just a small time cult, you know, it was an operation. It was an intelligence operation, uh, especially for them to have all this money. And we still have an idea of how much money they actually had and how much was being funded back to the intelligence agencies or the military industrial complex as far as far as a black budget is concerned. Uh, you know, I mean, one veteran member of the finders said they're millionaires. You know, uh, we want to be very strong financially. We don't just lay around, you know. So, so much wealth for such a small group of communal hippies, right? I mean, let's be real here. Um, and so, I mean, Marion Petty had Invisible Bank. And to join the finders, you had to put your money and your assets into that Invisible Bank. And later, the finders would sue Petty. Uh, to try to get some of their money back that had left the operation after the 1987 Tallahassee incident. So I it's just to think that they were just a group of hippies uh, is just, to me is just ludicrous. Now that being said, though, to think that they've done every single thing that modern day conspiracism has. Um, implicated them. And for example, like the six children that were found at the Tallahassee incident, uh, that they had kidnapped those children. And no, those children were part of the fighters operation. Uh, their parents were members of the finders operation. Um, you know, and so there's a lot of misconceptions around the conspiracy culture about the finders. I mean, that's what I set forth in trying to write this book and to get this information out was, okay, so what can I prove and what is unprovable? Because there's a lot of, you know, speculation when it comes to the finders. Some possibly malevolent, some maybe benign speculation, as we all do, you know. So, you know, I there's just a, there's a lot of speculation about, you know, the children. There's a lot of speculation about the nefarious actions of the finders and how far those nefarious actions go, um, you know, and who all, who all was involved. Do I think every single person in the finders operation knew of some of the most darkest elements of the finders operation, like human trafficking? Probably not. It was a very high, highly compartmentalized group. Um, did Marion Petty have a good idea of mostly what was going on? Pretty sure he did. Absolutely. And I mean, a lot of the times with these cults or secret societies, there is this inner circle and an outer circle, or sometimes there's even more layers of compartmentalization than that. But that is all very interesting. And I see so many parallels between the finders and other cults that I've done research into, uh, like the process church or, or something like that, where 
the, the, all these important people or important historical events in the count in the context of the counterculture. And you find, you know, either petty or other finders members there, or there's just all these, you know, countercultural figures in which they have connections to, or how they have the money for all these different expensive properties, you know, and, uh, you know, ridiculous claims by Petty that, you know, initially the money came from gambling winnings or, or something the, like that. All this that. technology so do- that they have as well, too. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just want to say that all the technology they have, Luke, as well as having like warehouses with like satellite dishes and like the newest equipment, you know, and stuff like that. It's like, they're just a hippie commune. Why do they have all this stuff? Exactly, exactly. And that was something that struck me when I was reading through um, your articles as some of the items that they were found to be in possession of and some of those satellites and stuff like that. Exactly. What need would a hippie commune, you know, um, have for that? Anyways, something that you mentioned, and this is something that factors into the, you know, typical finders narrative is the, you know, Tallahassee incident and, well, you know, with Douglas Edward Ammerman and, and James Michael Howell and these, you know, kids who kind of look feral. And as you said, you know, a lot of people say that they were kidnapped and stuff. And you've already dispelled a couple misconceptions about that. But I do think that it is um, something that's important when discussing the finders. So could you tell us just a little bit about the Tallahassee incident and what you specifically found in your research on it? Yeah. So on February 4th, 1987, a concerned citizen, whose name was Cindy Peterson, notified the Tallahassee Police Department that she observed six children playing in Myers Park. She said the six children were poorly dressed, bruised, dirty, and behaving like wild animals and accompanied by two well-dressed white males. The well-dressed white males were Douglas Edward Ammerman, who was 27 at the time, and James Michael Hallowell, who was 28 at the time. They were driving one of the Finder's infamous vans. It was a um, uh, 1979 Dodge Sportsman van. Um, They had a Virginia license plate. And so at approximately 4.50 p.m., two Tallahassee police officers, Tony Mashburn and Judy Shiaki, arrived at Myers Park to investigate the concerned citizen's phone call. Um, Officer Mashburn mentioned that when he arrived in the scene, the children were very dirty and unkempt. So uh, that's when, you know, as most people are aware, aware of that Ammerman and Hallwell claim they were teacher teachers from Washington, DC en route with the kids to a school for brilliant children in Mexico. Um, you know, um, and so that's also where it's very, you know, they come with, well, did they kidnap the kids or were the kids, uh, you know, um, children of the members of the finders operation where they were children of the members of the finders operation. Um, uh, Jordan Rico, uh, is uh, uh, adopted father was one of those gentlemen that were with her. It was James Michael Hollowell Jr. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, the, the, the kids were, um, they were um, members of the, the, the finders operations uh, children. Uh, John Paul Pope, whose real name was James, Mike, James Michael Hollowell III, I believe, uh, his mother was Paula Rico and James Michael Hollowell Jr. Uh, and so, you know, they, they, these kids were, all intents and purposes, 
members of the fighters operation against their will, but they were. Um, and yes, I mean, you know, everything that everybody knows of, you know, that, that they, <sighs> that they were taken into police custody, um, that they were dirty. The children were filthy. They stated they were only given, uh, vegan food. Um, you know, their diets were very poor. Uh, Max, uh, Livingston had a, uh, poor concept of time. Max didn't know what a staple or a typewriter was. Um, you know, yes. I mean, all the, the stories that we know from the Tallahassee police to reports and from standard conspiracism. Yes, it's all true. I do believe that the finders children, uh, were, uh, neglected, uh, at the bare minimum. I do think that they were probably mentally abused, likely. Um, you know, there was a discussion of these, what they call it, I think the pronunciation is diatric or didatric play, uh, where the members of the fighters would put on masks and put the kids in closets and, uh, kind of like scare them or make them laugh, you know, and these dark closets, you know, which I think is God, that gives me kind of a little bit of MK Ultra vibe vibes, right? Right? You know, so I mean that that's it's a little that's a little startling, you know, that you would do that to your kids, you know, and, and and everything. I would not do that to my children, and I have children. I think that's very cruel. Um uh, you know, and so, you know, they would do they claim that was therapeutic or you know, they put their kids in a, in a free state cabin. You know, uh Mary was the oldest, she was six, Max Livingston was around the age of six. And uh the, the other children were from the ages of, of four to one roughly. Uh and um they would uh watch from afar, but the kids would be in the cabin alone by themselves for hours at a time. That's a little more yeah. than just weird parenting. Okay. A little fringe parenting. Okay. Like I know some people might say, since I'm a conservative Christian, that it might be just how I'm looking at it. But no, I think that's very neglectful at the bare minimum. Okay. Um, do I think that there was any sexual abuse? Um, I don't, I, I can't verify it. I can't verify uh, the Tallahassee police reports about, um, you know, uh, that it came out from Dr. Samuel Moore, who's deceased of, uh, for example, uh, I believe it was Jordan Rico's, uh, left hymen was, was partially broken. Um, you know, that was discussed in the uh, Tallahassee uh, Police Department. Uh, but then again, that's not necessarily from uh, sexual uh, penetration in and of itself for that to happen. Um, and and also uh, one of the boys had a loose anal sphincter, which, you know, my knowledge of digestive health, uh, that could just been from their very, very poor diet leading to uh, prolapsed hemorrhoids. Um, we don't have any more information outside of that. Um, and those allegations were letter withdrawn. The, 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 um, parents were adamant that there was no sexual abuse that had gone on. Um, I know in a, in a documentary that will be released hopefully soon, uh, that jo Jordan Rico had mentioned that she was never sexually abused. She is on the record supposedly allegedly stating that, um, 
And, uh, you know, like I have mentioned previously beforehand, though, however, I do find it quite odd that, you know, they did the children discussed this when they were, you know, interviewed by the police, that the mothers of the children during one Christmas celebration kind of came down completely in the nude in front of the children and would do pixie like dances, which Toby Terrell also mentions that occurs the first time he goes to the finder's apartment and meets some of the finders with Marion Petty, that they were kind of answering the door in the nude and kind of doing like these pixie ish like dances, you know? So I think that's inappropriate. Um, but is it, sexual molestation no uh do i think it's very very inappropriate um and there are many things that the fighters should have been investigated uh with we know you know during the 1980s that there were at least one police incident maybe two of how some of the finders kids were completely left to their own devices you know wandering the streets of washington dc out of the outside of the finders warehouses yes there were um, they were even taking for a brief time into um, uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, custody uh, because of that. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't have any evidence that the six children were molested, which most people uh, in the conspiracy culture, uh, you know, mention that and more about the children, right? They also state that the six children were not members of the finders operation, their parents were not, uh, but they very much were. Um, now, do I think that the kids were neglected? I do. Do I think the kids were emotionally abused, mentally abused? Yes, I do. Uh, I have no evidence of sexual abuse, so I will not mention such. Um, you know, I, I, I've tried to clear that up the, the, the best that I can, uh, just because there, I, there's no evidence. I mean, I, the evidence that Moore had written in the, you know, that the police had taken down, the Tallahassee police had taken down, um, through my medical knowledge is tentative at best. I need to see the medical reports. I need to see what Moore actually wrote down and Jane Patella wrote down. Um, I have not been able to get in contact with Jane Patella. Um, so outside of not seeing those reports, I have no idea outside the brief write-up that we have. I talked with Tallahassee police department, uh, Rick Huffman, who was investigator, uh, you know, that, that took over, uh, from, uh, Cheryl Wigand in the Tallahassee police department. Uh, he, uh, uh, mentioned to me that he did not believe that the children were sexually abused, uh, through talking with him. He kind of changed his opinion at the time. He was just like, they're a cult. They have some weird parenting practices, uh, you know, whatever, to me talking with him. I've only talked with him one time at length. We, we gave him more knowledge of everything where he was kind of like, okay, you know, there are some issues here that I didn't know at the time. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, the charges against Ammerman and Hollowell were eventually dropped. Um, you know, they were charged with uh, child abuse and both were given $100,000 bonds in February 4th, 1987. Uh, like I said, the charges were eventually dropped against them uh, much later on. And, uh, you know, eventually the children were returned to their parents who were members of the fighters operation. Um, it took a while. Uh, some of them were in state custody for months before they were uh, released to their parents. Um, but yes, uh, that is what happened during the Tallahassee incident. Yeah, that, um, 
it's certainly because like when you hear other accounts of it in the alternative media, at least in my experience, um, a lot of that stuff is mentioned kind of divorced from the wider context. And, you know, when not given that full picture, it can seem very, you know, um, like very damning evidence. But then with, you know, all that background that's provided by you, it, uh, you know, it could it be indicative indicative of something more sinister? It could be, but there isn't that that evidence there. And you know whether it be about the you know the the, the hymen or the the you know uh, I mean all this can be explained by other things and is not necessarily an indication that these children were sexually abused. Now this is um, might be a little bit of an off the wall question. But you mentioned a uh, school in Mexico and something that it just made me mm-hmm. think of. Um, you know Whitley Strieber? Yes, he, I do. Yes, I know his so-called, uh, what he wrote about his book as well. But but go ahead. I, I know all that, yes. Okay. I, w- I was just going to say, and I feel like I can't remember where now, but like I've heard of some other supposed uh, school for like gifted kids or something like that in Mexico. So I was just wanting to know if that was on your, uh, if that was on your radar, because I don't know, that's just kind of where my, my mind went. And um, I mean, it's certainly possible that this school in Mexico could have just been some sort of story that they, you know, fudged up. Um but uh, anyways, it just made my mind kind of jump to an. Well, I mean, well, place. I mean, they were. I, I I have proved that the finders were um, friends with uh, Ivan Illich, uh, who was a Jesuit-trained alternative education uh, pusher, uh, who did have his own school in Mexico. So whether that was a school they were going to, I don't know. I know Whitley Strieber. Uh, mentioned briefly, I think it was either in an interview or in a book, and I think I actually super chatted him and asked him to try to get him to clarify, but he wasn't really able to do so. Um, kind of alluding to he knew what the school was, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, Interesting. But he has again, a book. no evidence was given by him. Interesting. I, I haven't read it, but um, I think it was in Communion. I think that's the only book I've read by him where he briefly mentions it, but he does have a book titled The Secret School Preparation for Contact, which is supposed to be about this school where the children were being prepared for alien contact or something like that. Have not read it. Do not know what the contents of it are. Anyways, that was my off the wall question. Uh, just, you know, kind of got the gears in my head spinning a little bit when you mentioned that and when I was reading through your Substack article. Um, the overview of the finder's case. But so we've talked about the Tallahassee incident and we've talked about Petty and some of these other things. And, um, you know, something that I think uh, maybe I should have asked this sooner is, could you just tell us a little bit about both the uh, structure of the cult and just like what, what, what would it look like to be a member of of the finders cult i mean kind of like what did their day-to-day look like i think you've mentioned something about how they uh lived communally or at least ostensibly you know that's the story yeah so if you remember finders you had very little access to any personal property uh any asset that you owned previously beforehand whether it was property vehicles uh, jewelry, uh, money in a bank account or a savings account, 
or, uh, you know, uh, any, anything of like that you would own as personal property, uh, would be given to Marion Petty to be put into the invisible bank, uh, to hopefully grow your money allegedly, supposedly, or go to the finder's operation for it to function properly. Uh, um, if you remember the finders, uh, you know, Marion Petty was the game caller, so you would have to listen to him first and foremost, even though he would claim that he wasn't the leader, that various people, including women like Barbara Sylvester, were the leader. Barbara Sylvester would literally die from a burst appendix, allegedly, supposedly, uh, that was not medically uh, treated. Um, and so, you know, but, you know, Petty would tell people, okay, I need you to go do this for me. I need you to, you know, go here. I need you to go do this. I mean, that's what you would say is the game caller, right? So at a moment's notice, you know, you'd be told, I need you and I'm just, you know, speaking off the top of my head. I need you and Roy Mason, who was a famous architect, uh, who who was a member of the World Future Society, and I need you, and the psychologist Stephen Belt. I need you for Barbara Marks Hubbard to go set up one of her SINCON conventions and um, be a fly on the wall and gather information, right? And so you would have to drop whatever you're doing, and when he, he when he call these games and just go do it. Yeah, so a game's a, an operation, essentially, that you're assigned. For a lack of a better words, yeah, I would say that. Um, and so it was like a task or something that you would do, right? And, you know, not to define, you know, a lot of the finders, what they would do is, is they would go... They, the, the main source of, of money, supposedly, allegedly, was uh, ghost writing and gathering intelligence, right? And writing for journals and for people and, um, you know, and, and, and uh, writing for, like, the World Future Society Futurist Journal, which, um, um, you know, Kristen Noth would, 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 would be an author for, Finders member Kristen Noth. Uh, and so, you know, that's what they would end up doing, right, is they would trade intelligence or they would, you know, be ghostwriters for somebody. And that's how they would make their money, supposedly, allegedly. Or they would go, you know, they, like they were told to go um, spy on Robert Schwartz at his Terrytown Business Center where a lot of corporations uh, were, were, were brought in like IBM through the Terrytown Business Center uh, to kind of be introduced to like new age uh, theology. You know, and so he they would go there and they he, they'd be like, okay, you know, Petty would be like, I need you guys to uh, learn from Schwartz, gain as much information that you can from him, and help him around and do chores to survive for him. Hopefully, earn some money and come back. You know, so it's stuff like that. You know, and 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 um, you know, there was very little uh, autonomy. There was very little um, uh, uh kind of like like um personal um liberty within the group uh within the cult within the operation um and uh you know it was very much you 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 did what Marion Petty said to do but Marion Petty would act like it's not me we're doing everybody's doing this but I'm not the leader this person is or this person is you know there's a lot of double speak there um, but if that's best what I could describe what the finders would do. Yeah. And I could see how by petty, by saying that is, you know, just trying to create an air of plausible deniability in case, you know, something were to hit the fan or something like that later. But anyways, I, I do appreciate that explanation. So 
kind of just to build off that a little bit, I'm going to read a sentence from uh, one of your Substack articles where you say, investigative journalist Wendell Minnick stated that members of the Finders operation express their philosophy with little mottos, including the name of the game is do what thou wilt, borrowing from Aleister Crowley's highest satanic thelemic law and maximum freedom, minimum guilt. So anyways, the reason that I that I read that is because I just want to pick your brain a little bit about what kind of was the uh, philosophy or the theology even of the finders cult because like when I was doing research into the the process church, you can find all kinds of documents and stuff that pretty clearly lay out what it is that they believe. Um, and you know, uh, how they went from kind of being this like offshoot of Scientology to creating this weird kind of like Gnostic esque type theology that was somewhat uniquely their own. But anyways, I, I, something that I haven't really seen too much of when people talk about the finders is, you know, what was kind of the belief of the group or was there even a quiet and explicit uh, theology or, or anything like that when it comes to the group? Or was it kind of just this, you know, um, libertine type view, um, you know, that was, you know, uh, kind of in vogue during, during the counterculture? There was none to my knowledge. I've done a lot of trying to investigate that. Do I believe that the, operation was into occult practices i do and uh, i'll be fleshing more of that in my sub stack once i get to the tallahassee incidents into the washington dc warehouse raids um you know uh, but was there any specific uh ideology or religious theology uh that the finders adhered to to my knowledge no uh but there was a libertine uh, belief system within um, the finders. You know, Wendell Minnick, you know, mentioned that their little motto is include the name of the game is to do what thou wilt or maximum freedom, minimum guilt. That does seem to encompass the finders operation, in my opinion. Um, as well as, I mean, they, you know, they would put up, you know, various scripture around, right? Uh, you know, uh, when they owned the movie theater in Nethers, Virginia, uh, for example, they would put scripture on the marquee, right? Or in their, or in the, or in the, um, in their, um, telephone, uh, you know, message. Um, and so. And this is like biblical scripture that you're. Yes, biblical, yes, biblical scripture. Yes. I don't remember exactly what offhand I could, I could look it up if need be. Uh, but that was noted. Um, and so, you know, they, they, they you know, uh, investigative journalist Charles Sulka, who knew the Finders, uh, discussed that the Finders absolutely hated Christianity and would mock God all the time. They, you know, it would be very fre frequent that they would do so. Um, and Toby Terrell uh, was a Buddhist. I do believe that to be true. There is inklings that he did actually, supposedly, allegedly, hopefully, become born again. I don't know if he's still alive. He may have died uh, here recently. Uh, but beforehand, there were uh, discussions in the New Age boards uh, and the Buddhist boards uh, that he um, became born again. Uh, 
that he uh, became Christian in the final, if he is still alive, I don't know if he is or not, or if he's, or if he's passed away, um, that he had become born again in his final uh, years or months that, you know, he's, he's, he's been had ill health for a while. I, I pray to God, hopefully that that's true. Um, that, that, that he did become born again, that he is saved. Um, but you know, there was no central theology of the finders members that I know of or, or central ideology that I know of, uh, that was, that was practiced like, you know, with, you know, uh, the, the church universal and triumphant with Elizabeth Clare prophet, it was obviously theosophy, right? But with the finders, it doesn't seem that was be the case. It was ultimate chaos. I mean, yeah, you could say a libertine ideology. Sure. I, I would agree with that. Uh, but you know, is there anything that was, you have to believe this way or anything like that? No, the only thing that I could see is is you couldn't necessarily have a Christian worldview and be a member of the Finders. That's the only thing that I could see. Uh, but as far as an assigned theology or belief system or political ideology or ideology in general, no, I don't. You know, do I believe that the Finders practice esotericism and New Age belief, uh, thought, and libertinism? Yes, of course. Uh, but you know, I think that was just because chaos was allowed to flourish within the finders. There wasn't anything set per se. Interesting. Okay. That that's good to have clear, cleared up because, you know, as I was reading through some of your Substack articles and stuff like that, you know, uh, there was uh, a connection that one of them had to someone in Kenneth Grant's Typhonian order. There was, uh, you know, uh, you know, I mean, you talk about Stephen Belt, the psychi the psychiatrist uh, or psychologist. Yes, the, he um, he picked up one of the members. One of the members tra traveled around with him uh, that later joined the Typhonian Order. Um, who was a teenager, traveled around with their family bus. Um, man, I wish I could remember the guy's name. Um, but yes, he was mentioned. Um, traveling around with the belts family uh and he was mentioned by the famous conspiracy parapolitical author <gasps> um a lot of people find him controversial including myself i'm trying to remember the name of him um he wrote, um, the guy's name is Jeffrey Evans. Um, that was the guy that was a former head of Kenneth Grant's Typhonian order who traveled around with the belts, but I don't know if he was head of the Typhonian order at the time that he traveled around with the belts family. Um, but he, he did. Um, and, uh, who was the guy who wrote the, wrote about it i'll see if i if i remember i'll i'll, I'll mention it later look yeah, feel, feel free to blurt uh, it out peter cause... lavenda peter lavenda that's who it was, it was oh. peter lavenda <laughs> uh, uh wrote the statement from jeffrey evans about that yeah we've talked about lavenda on the or i mean i i've talked about lavenda on the show before um in relation to tom DeLong and all of his alien nonsense yep. that he's up to and i know that Jimmy Fallon Gong has also talked a lot about Peter Lavenda and uh, I, he's someone who I think is fascinating to read and I uh, really like the sinister forces books, 
but I would not trust him farther than I could throw him by any stretch of the means. He's kind of another one of those guys who just ends up uh, popping up in all these different, you know, uh, famous historical things and like the counterculture or has all these weird connections. There's the picture of him with Tom DeLonge and John Podesta. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. There, there's all kinds of things that could be said about Peter Lavenda, but no, that's, that's very interesting. Um, but yeah, anyways, I, I, I'm, I, I'm glad that you cleared that up just because I, uh, see a lot of these, you know, disparate kind of, uh, connections to different people and magical belief systems and stuff amongst the finders. And so I was, you know, curious as to whether or not they had a, a concrete idea, or if it was kind of just this eclectic group of people into esoteric and magical belief systems. And I guess, you know, Buddhism and, and stuff and them having, you know, using scripture in different uh, instances could be some sort of, you know, Gnostic inversion of, of all of this, especially, you know, when you provide the context that they seem to be kind of hostile to Christianity. So um, that's, that, that, that's very interesting, but now maybe something that we could talk about is you include in your um, one of your Substack articles a list of some of the in people um, influenced by the finders or who had some kind of connection to the finders. And uh, many of these people have interesting belief systems all of their own. Uh, maybe the first who we could start off talking just a little bit about, she's already came up in the course of our conversation, but is Barbara Marks Hubbard. Because when I was, uh, I had John Kleizek on and uh, my last podcast to discuss Barbara Marks Hubbard and the newest fear and, and all of that, that crazy stuff. And I always find the connection between kind of the new age and uh, magical belief systems um, being related to transhumanism, very interesting. And so then I was, you know, completely fascinated by Hubbard and had Kleizek on. And then I start looking into your stuff about the finders. And after talking about Kleizek and he said that I got to check out your stuff, you know, I see that Barbara Marks Hubbard is involved with the finders. And I just found that incredibly fascinating. So could you talk a little bit about Barbara Marks Hubbard in relation to the finders? Hello? Did you mute yourself or become unplugged or something? I mute myself on accident. I'm sorry about that, Luke. I apologize. No worries. Uh, no worries. Um, I was just making there's some sure fireworks. There's some fireworks. There's some. No, there's some fireworks going out, going out, going on right now for Memorial Day. So oh, uh, sorry absolutely. about that. It got kind of loud by my house. No um, worries. And so. Uh, yeah, I was a, a shout out to uh, uh, to, to John Kleizak, uh, who I've done research with, uh, you know, uh, on Barbara Marks Hubbard, among many things. He's a dear friend of mine. Also, shout out to another dear friend of mine, Artur Tafoyski, uh, who we did a show with another friend of mine's uh, recluse, Stephen Snyder, on the farm, who's also done research, too, about Barbara Marks Hubbard. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you know, discovered... Uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard's relation to the fighters through the investigative leads memo where it was listed that her and um, her and uh, Marion D. Petty uh, became uh, uh, um, 
kind of uh, they started the World Future Society with uh, Edward Cornish, who Edward Cornish was really good friends with uh, Marion D. Petty as well. And so that's what brought my attention to her was because of the finders. I had never heard of her previously beforehand until I started investigating the finders. And, um, and so, you know, I, that's when I started really, really deep diving into Barbara Marks Hubbard. Um, and hopefully I'll try not to try not to cover, you know, any ground that John has already covered, Again, um, but I might briefly maybe go over a few things that he did, uh, and if I do, I apologize to anybody listening out there. Uh, but a no, Hubbard, I, uh, I, father, I have to hear uh, things like two or three times before I, I learn it, so it, it'll be good for me at least to uh, to hear it again. But anyway, sorry I interrupted. <laughs> yeah, no, me too as well, brother. I I just you know some people don't necessarily like to to hear the same thing over again. Um, you know, but anyway, uh, Barbara Mark's, uh, father, uh, Lewis Mark senior, um, was, uh, he owned a toy company. He was an American toy maker, uh, Lewis Marks and company, uh, which is, a lot of his tolls, toys were sold during the 1950s in Sears Roebuck, uh, Roebuck and company catalogs. And, uh, you know, her father was a major, the Marks family was a major financier to the Bush family. Okay. That's how powerful the Marxes were. Okay. And, and, um, you know, Marx was really good friends with Dwight D. Eisenhower and J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, and so, you know, he was, you know, the family was very high up. Um, you know, Marx was, uh, he was also a father-in-law of, of Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg. Um, you know, so the, the Marx family were the elite of the elite. You know, they're not just, you know, some small time family. Okay. So Barmars Hubbard um, also went to the Dalton School. Uh, where, you know, Donald Barr was headmaster. Um, and, um, you know, uh, granted, she went long before Donald Barr was the headmaster of the school. Uh, but it's just interesting that she went to that, um, uh, you know, famous school. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I you know, Klezak's already talked about her, her um, mentor was Jesuit eugenicist evolutionist Pierre Tellard de Chardin, um, who's someone who she really looks up to and is someone that she really admires. Uh, but she also, of course, um, had a love relationship and actually left her husband and her family uh, to be with Jonas Salk uh, and actually funded through some of the money that she had Jonas Salk's Institute. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of people are not aware of that, uh, but that did happen. And uh, Salk actually mentioned that Barbara Marks Hubbard did more to bring apart his idea of the world than even he did. And so that, you know, that's Salk saying how influential Barbara Marks Hubbard is. And it's just, it blows my mind, you know, when so few people actually really truly have ever heard of this woman. And I've always gave the kind of analogy that she's like, you know, you're kind of like in the hospital you're kind of knocked out on painkillers. You know, you may have injured your back, maybe, uh, you know, pretty badly. You're kind of in and out of it, right? And she's a nurse that comes in, you know, and you're kind of in and out of consciousness. And she's smiling and she's saying this is for the greater good as she puts a pillow over your head and you're incapacitated and unable to defend yourself. Um, you know, that's the way I look at her. Now you might ask, well, well, why do you look at her that way? Like, how could she be such an evil uh, person? Well, I mean, she is a major eugenicist among being a new age or two as well. But I mean, the statements that she has made, which 
you know, I, I you know, I, I need to thank John Kleizak very greatly for this because he was able to get, you know, we were able to finally, after all this research that we have done, um, you know, verify the infamous um, statement that Barbara Marks Hubbard, uh, you know, the quote that was attributed to her about, you know, I'm paraphrasing here that the elite were going to, um, you know, kill off one fourth of the population that they were the pale horse riders, you know, death. And, and, you know, and if you look in any of her books, that wasn't, um, you can't find it. However, we were able to get a copy of her, of, of her co-creation, kind of like this new age, uh, interpretation of the revel, the book of, you know, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, and it was called the book of co-creation, evolutionary interpretation of the new Testament. This was a manuscript, uh, that she had written and she did not. And I'm going to be covering this on my channel, on my sub stack during the summer. She didn't hold back, man. This is where that quote comes from. Okay. And I read a little bit of it in William on William Ramsey's show when we started talking about the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And Barbara Marks Hubbard actually spoke to the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And in this book, I mean, she is literally saying, you know, that and all and more. She's literally telling people, you know, don't worry that these people will die. The blood's not on your hands. We're the one who's doing it. <laughs> and I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> you know, like it doesn't get much clearer than that. Uh, that's pretty dark, man. So, you know, I, she was an evil, evil woman. Um, there is no doubt about that in my mind that she was an elitist and she would, you know, kind of as a smile, tell you how much she loves you and, you know, love and light and how enlightened that she was and everything. But she was anything but. She was anything but. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, the World Future Society uh, kind of has its basis in modern day scientism uh, that is being pushed as a belief system. And a lot of our science fiction comes from the World Future Society. I mean, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, Gene Roddenberry, uh, they were all uh, members of the World Future Society. I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Carl Sagan, uh, Ben Gertzel, Abraham Maslow, Ray Kurzweil, they were all members of the World Future Society as well. So, you know, Barbara Mars Hubbard, and I've done numerous streams, and I could do even more streams on her. She was the elite of the elite, and she earnestly believed this stuff. She wasn't saying this. I mean, she was channeling demons. She even talked about, you know, automatic writing, and where a lot of this came from was um, kind of the same demon that a lot of the theosophists channeled, which was um, Satan. Instead of Satan, they call it Satan. Um, and you know, it's the same rotten fruits of theosophy, whether it's Madame Blavatsky, whether it's Alice Bailey, who said the sterilization of the hierarchy actually starts in 2025. We'll see that if that's true, uh, where the new world order comes into fruition and accelerates. Um, you know, these theosophists were eugenists, they were racist, um, and they did their best to try to code it through love and light. Um, but they're not 
any of that, you know, they're liars. You know, when, when Barbara Marks Hubbard talks in a Christian type light language, she was not a born again Christian. Uh, she did not, you know, worship Jesus Christ or God the Father. She just used that to try to bring new age thoughts into Christianity, which is what exactly what Alice Bailey wanted to do to infiltrate the church as she wrote about externalization of the hierarchy. And, you know, and so the, you know, the, 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 this is the religion of the this is the religion of the elite. Barmer's Harvard wrote about it, and you can discount her and just say she's some crazy new age wackadoo, okay? But she was an elite of the elite. She was up there. She was high up there. And so I just don't see how people could just discount that. You know, you can choose not to to believe in Satan or God, but this woman, for all intents and purposes, did, and she choose to serve Satan and choose to push the Mystery Babylon religion tenets because that's what the elite believe, and that's what she believes. Um, hopefully that makes sense. Hopefully I haven't been rambling, Luke. Oh, um, not at all. Uh, something that Kleizek said in one of his articles, and I'm probably going to butcher this because I don't have the quote in front of me, but I think it was a very astute observation, is that kind of the Christian idea of God and the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is that mm -hmm. he came down to man, he condescended to man and became, you know, God in human flesh and, you know, reached out to us, whereas Barbara Marks Hubbard's idea is like an inversion, kind of like a satanic inversion of that, which is that man reaches up to God, you know, some Tower of Babel stuff through, you know, technological well, not innovation. Even that, that, man, man, that man usurps God, that we co-create with God, eventually usurp God, um, which ultimately you could say that's what the Tower of Babel, you know, um, was about, you know, with Nimrod. Um, but I mean, she states that pretty much, you know, yeah, that, that was um, a better way to phrase it. We can co-create with God that we're equals to God and that we can surpass God. Uh, I mean, she even mentions that, you know, Christ's abilities or Christ-like abilities, which she says, you know, or evolutionary capacities or nuclear energy, biotechnology, longevity, self-replicating machines, the power to build new worlds, etc. And even, you know, she writes about the mystical properties of mRNA. And that was, you know, her, her book, Happy Birthday, Planet Earth, that was written in 1984. You know, I mean, they talk about, you know, they talk about seeding the stars. I mean, fascists are, are just obsessed with space. They're just obsessed with it. And so, you know, where can you get a fascist... A Council for National Policy member, a white nationalist, and Barbara Mars Hubbard to agree on is conquering space. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's crazy, but they all agree on that. So I don't know. No, that's <sighs> that's very that's very interesting, and uh, I haven't thought about the space thing, but yeah, that 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 certainly is true, and. Anyways, I, I appreciate you talking a little bit about Barbara Marks Hubbard because I find her to be so interesting. And I think that she's a great example of how this, uh, you know, what some people like to call scientism or something like that. It, um, it truly is a, a, a religious belief system. 
And I think it's, you know, so clearly exemplified by someone like Barbara Marks Hubbard. And I think that um, not only is she like the elite of the elite, but she has this outsized influence on all these different peoples, you know, starting in the time of the counterculture leading up to today. I mean, her influence is, is still felt, you know, so she's a, a very important figure who um, was not on my radar for the longest time until I read Kleizek's articles and just every little thing I learn about her is more and more interesting now. Uh, just real quick, this is, might be, if you haven't seen it, it might be something that you would find humorous if you're ever looking for a good laugh, but, uh, it's a group of Barbara Marks Hubbard's like, uh, somewhat distant colleagues or like, you know, fanboys or girls of hers who did this stream where they're talking about Kleizek's article. And, uh, you know, some of them say during the course of it, oh, we just think that she was, you know, kind of misled a little bit by you know some of the uh, uh oligarchy type people who who she came into contact with but i don't know it's kind of like this uh hour plus long live stream of all of them kind of trying to to, to cope with, with the stuff in Kleizek's articles yeah yeah i mean we're still finding more information about her now and connections that she has to the world elite and you know her true beliefs you know, it's, 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 it's something else. I'll tell you that much. Uh, there's more to find on her, not less. Absolutely. So a couple other of these people who you mention um, on your list of people who um, were influenced by the finders or, or had some kind of connection to them is uh one of them who I'd like to discuss just because I've talked about him on one of my recent episodes, and he's just someone who I find endlessly fascinating, um, is you put Timothy Leary on the list. Do you, off the top of your head, can you tell us how Timothy Leary relates to the finders? Some of the members of the finders... Um, discuss various people that were around Timothy Leary. Um, they, they, Toby Terrell writes about Timothy Leary in the Game Caller. Uh, that that they uh, whether it's um, Baba Ram Doss or whether it's um, oh, the pilot, the pilot that's mentioned in the investigative leads memo. Um, Walt Schneider was a member of the Finders, and I'm still trying to verify this. Okay. Um, that Petty knew Walt Schneider, who and he was Timothy Leary and Billy Hitchcock's private pilot, and a guy named Willard Polson. Now I know Willard Polson was in the Finders. Toby Terrell writes about him in the Game Caller. Writes about that he was kind of into psychedelic drugs. I'm still trying to flush out the Timothy Leary information. There's been times where I thought I was close, that I had it for sure. St still haven't yet. It's still in the Nexus, but like nothing smoking gun. Okay. Yeah. I might not I ever find it, but. That's the only thing that I've seen is there's discussion of people around Timothy Leary in Toby Terrell's book, The Game Caller, 
but there's and then again there's mentioned the investigative leads memo about Timothy Leary as far as Walt Schneider uh you know working with Petty as Timothy Leary and Billy Hitchcock's private pilot and also Willard Polson. But it's stuff that has to be fleshed out. I have not got that far yet. Um hopefully by the end of the book I will have that information if it does exist. Okay. Okay, yeah. I was just curious because Timothy Leary is such a wacky figure who's so clearly, you know, connected to intelligence. And I mean, he, he's just such an interesting character. And so I was intrigued when I saw his name on your list. But anyways, we could, you know, and I know that you could talk all day about the just copious amounts of connections that the finders have to all these different people, whether it be in the, the human potential movement or mankind research unlimited or cross Leisler, uh, Yes. Yes. You know? So, um, I mean, if, if there's any of those, uh, groups or people who you'd like to talk about, um, I'd be happy to listen or we can just move on to, um, I would also like to talk about the, uh, the Washington investigation and kind of the investigations that happened subsequently after the uh, Tallahassee incident, because you've mentioned a little bit about some of the high tech that the finders um, were in possession of, but there's also some other very interesting things that were found as a result of these investigations and raids and stuff that took place. Hmm. Well, how about we talk about somebody real quick that I haven't mentioned much on any other podcasts? Um, I would love that. Let's talk about Ed Elkin for a minute. Okay. So, um, Ed Elkin, uh, he's, he's very interesting guy. Very, I mean, I mean, he has something else. Um, so Ed is a psychotherapist. Uh, he's a gestalt therapist, um, speaker. He's author. He's a new ager, uh, he renamed himself Jorel. Of course, Jorel was the name of Superman's father. Uh, Jorel Adam Raw. He claims also to be a time traveler as well from the 24th century. Um, Ed was a Fulbright scholar, um, and uh, he worked directly with Fritz Perls, who was a the, he was a pioneered gestalt therapy and taught at the Esalen Institute. Um, Pearls was a German, he was a German psychotherapist. And, uh, so, uh, Ed in his own admission knew Timothy Leary. Uh, he was a founding member of the Gasol Institute in Washington, DC. Um, he, uh, worked directly with Dennis Kucinich, uh, and was a member of the Dennis Kucinich campaign for the United States presidency in Hawaii. Of course, uh, Dennis Kucinich was a, uh, his mentor was Barbara Marks Hubbard. Um, and um, Ed was also a consultant to Barbara Marks Hubbard's Committee for the Future and was a leading proponent of Barbara Marks Hubbard conscious evolution theory. And so the interesting thing about Elkin that I could track down was that he was. Um, working in the United States Army Chemical Corps, testing various chemicals, whether it was Nurge agents, LSD, PCP, on thousands of thousands of unwitting soldiers at, uh, 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 during the late 60s or early 70s. 
Um, and the Army had funded Ed's early research into the effects of using LSD as an incapacitating agent uh, to be used in unconventional warfare on enemy combatants. Um, and so um, Ed administered these drugs um, to various um, you know uh, soldiers without their knowledge that they, they, they were un, they were unaware of be giving these drugs and these psychedelic um, uh, drugs. And uh, there were veterans who were able to thankfully get compensation from the United States military. And um, there were a lot of veterans who had permanent physical and mental issues uh, from being dosed with these drugs um, on that were, you know, they, they weren't, you know, they never signed up for these experiments. And uh, um, Ed's, Ed Elkin's wife, Pat Elkin, was a Scientologist. Um, I was verified that Pat Elkin was listed into a Truth About Scientology database. Listed as clear that she lived in Washington, D.C. Um, and so, you know, they actually lived at the finder's operation in the time at the Washington, D.C. apartments. And, um, yeah, so uh, Ed Elkin, you know, was very much a new ager uh, who was, I would say, a nefarious guy dosing soldiers at the behest of the United States government to their, you know, unwittingly to their knowledge uh, with LSD. And some of the soldiers had lasting tragic consequences to their health uh, because of that. I mean, imagine getting dosed with nerve agents or getting dosed with PCP, which PCP can make people very violent. You know, you're, 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 you don't even know this is put into your water or to your food. And the next thing you know, you're having, you know, a, a rage induced PS PCP incident or uh, a L LSD trip uh, unwilling that you've taken any drugs and how um, uh, traumatic that may be. Uh, you know, um, so yeah, hopefully, um, Luke, that you, you found that interesting about Ed Elkin. Um, I have not discussed him very much in other podcasts, but it was someone who I, I found very interesting to look into. Yeah, I do find that incredibly interesting. And so that makes me wonder, was the use of drugs a part of the finders cult? It may be, I mean, I'm sure that it existed amongst members, but I mean, as far as you know, was there anything like uh, that, you know, petty or someone like encouraged his members or, or group drug sessions? Or is that just kind of uh, not known? We're told that Petty did not use drugs, but then we're told in other circumstances that he did smoke marijuana. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, okay. There's been various conflicting reports of whether or not members of the finder's operation regularly used drugs or not, or psychedelics or not. Marijuana was used quite frequently. We do know that. Other things, it was probably a libertine attitude. You could take it right, you know, but I don't know if there was anything specifically given to them. Uh, you know, if that makes any sense, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. But yes, I would say that, you know, there was... Um, I would say that, you know, it was probably not frowned upon. That's for sure. 
but I don't know if there was anything specifically given to people, um, you know, that it was that it was a requirement or that they were dosed without their knowledge. I have no, I have no evidence of that. Yeah. I imagine it would probably be hard to have a commune of hippies during the time and not at least have a little bit of drug use that that was going on. But anyways, um, so before we conclude the uh, conversation, I would like to talk just a little bit about some of the things that were found during the raids that happened on the finders and the investigations that took place and specifically the altar um just because i mean uh but but anyways all right i'm still trying to flesh all this out i haven't read you know written this part of the book yet so a lot of it i'm going to go off of memory okay so uh there were two raids one was on the w street apartments in washington dc and the others was the warehouse that was on fourth street northeast um, and so there was two separate raids. We know this from, um, some of the FBI finders drops. We've had informations about them or the newspaper, uh, reporting or remote J Martinez, former customs officers reports, uh, about what was found, um, you know, at the, at, at the, uh, the residences of the finders. Um, you would, I, at the altar, I'm guessing you're talking about the so-called altar that was outside of the, uh, W street apartments, uh, supposedly, um, that the finders just claims that it was, you know, I think Toby Terrell just mentioned it was, you know, various rocks that were put together in a circle and it wasn't necessarily an altar per se. Uh, but you know, in the report, it did seem like that there were, previous allegations that it was an altar and that magic was being performed there. Um, I guess, is that what you're, is that what you're discussing? Luke? Yes. Yes. That, that I believe is what I was discussing. I just remember having read about an altar somewhere in the course of reading your, uh, Substack articles. But anyways, uh, there was a bunch of other stuff that was found that might actually be more informative than, than that, like some of the, the, the high tech that was found and stuff at these warehouses and what have you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I talked to, um, Ramon J. Martin as his partner, Robert Harrell, and he was uh, a computer. Um, he was an, he was a customs agent that was, uh, kind of like early cyber computer information, it officer. And so he wrote about, you know, he discussed with me and he wrote about a report that doesn't supposedly exist anymore. We tried to look for, it, we couldn't find it. He didn't have a copy of it. But he had his own report too, as well. They used to be supposedly allegedly on Usenet boards, but we can't find anymore. We looked, um, that corroborated a lot of what Martinez said, but not all of it. You know, I talked a lot with Robert Harold. He's a very nice gentleman. He was very forthcoming with information. And he was, as far as the speculation of the involvement of the finders and they being shut down by this, by the intelligence agencies, you know, he wouldn't really, you know, go as far as like Martinez was, where Martinez was like, yeah, this is being shut down by the government. You know, uh, you know, all intents and purposes, Harold was like, I don't know, you know. And so, but, you know, he would say there were odd things. He would tell me things that were previously not known, like the finders the night before the, um, 
the the warehouse raids, you know, Harold was told by a, a Chinese-owned warehouse that was nearby in the vicinity that the fighters were loading their two vans up with what appeared to be boxes of papers and computer equipment and stuff like that and everything. And then uh, that was, pre, you know, before the raid, you know, they were tipped off, you know. And then, you know, supposedly where they're training the CIA with future enterprises or training them in computers at the warehouse that, you know, they go there and they have all these desks and they could tell that there's computer equipment on there by the outlines of the dust because the desk had been dust very well. You know, that's what Harold had told me. And so there's various, you know, they had, you know, they had telexes, you know, international um, telexes, supposedly for orders of, uh, for human trafficking. Um, they had satellite dishes. They had equipment to film, uh, which the, um, you know, de- uh, Washington uh, Metro Department police officer John Stitcher believed that they were filming uh, pornography, specifically child pornography, in the uh, the warehouses. Um, there was supposedly, allegedly, an altar within the warehouse too, as well. Um, you know, and so I've 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 done my best to try to. You know, Harold said that some of the technology that they had was pretty advanced, but he also mentioned to me that some of it was not. Um, I don't remember offhand. I, I will write, be writing it in my book. Uh, his conversation, he said all of it was on the record with me. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll be able to break that more down, you know, then I, I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly offhand. Uh, but he said, you know, so, you know, some of the technology that did have that definitely was advanced for the time period. Uh, but not all of it was, not all of it was as advanced as most people think it is when, you know, when they're, you know, reading that the finders had all this technology, right? You know, but they did have a lot of money to have satellite dishes on top of their warehouse, <laughs> you know, that's able to transmit a lot of information internationally, uh, you know. And so I always found that quite interesting that they were tipped off before the raids, um, th- that they were able to get rid of a lot of the evidence before it was able to be investigated by Ramon J. Martinez and the other uh, customs uh, officers. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I, that's something that was previously not reported uh, that I was able to get Robert Harold on the record, who's a former, you know, United States uh, Customs officer. Um, you know, I I think obviously the execution of Henry of Igor of the two goats and the children were involved in that. And, you know, uh, Patch Adams tried to say it was animal husbandry, you know, Hunter Patch Adams, the famous uh, you know, uh, Robert Williams did the movie with Patch Adams, the clown doctor, you know, who's a member of the finders who had his own kind of group outside of the finders known as the zanies where the finders were known as the crazies, uh, you know, that, um, it was animal husbandry. It was animal husbandry, Luke, uh, that they were slaughtering these goats and cutting off the head and putting it on a silver platter. The kids had to hold the silver platter up, you know, that was just another day at the farm, right? That it wasn't some sort of ritual <laughs> slaughter and some sort of like, you know, like, uh, 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 you know, kind of like a traumatic experience for the kids, right? Some of them, you know, as young as two or three are out there doing this, right? You know, when I talk about mental abuse, that's what I'm thinking, you know, that's mental and spiritual abuse, uh, you know. Uh, and so, but that's what they try to, you know, so, I mean, like when I say the you know, I don't know exactly what the the, the, fight, the beliefs of the finders were as, as an operation or as a cult, I don't, but is there definitely some esoteric, you know, um, witchcraft, magic going on, you know? Yeah, I would say the execution of Henrietta and Igor is probably is about the, the biggest example that we have of that, uh, you know. Uh, and, you know, at the bare minimum, it was 
traumatizing to the children. I mean, they were literally in Henrietta cutting open the um, cutting open the womb and taking out, you know, these baby, you know, these goats that, that she was going to give birth to, you know, in front of the kids. You know, I mean, this is, this is sick, sick crap, you know. Um, and so that, that's why I like to discuss that because, you know, I guess to circle back to what you, you mentioned to me earlier, do I have any, you know, evidence of any occult like practices? And I would say, yeah, that's probably one of the biggest ones, right? Uh, you know, it's also extremely traumatizing for the children too. I think it's abuse in my opinion. Um, I'd even go the far say it's greater than neglect. Um, but that's pretty much, um, pretty much what I've uncovered. Uh, there's probably some more. Definitely, once I write it all out, I got some interviews, too, that I have to go back and listen to. Um, hopefully, that's been... Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any <sighs> more information. I mean, I talked about on, on Jimmy Fallon Gong's, you know, um, you know program. Um, you know, I, I discussed... <sighs> I discussed a program to chill that... <sighs> There, there was a um, a Metropolitan Police Department um, release that there was an officer that saw the warehouse that the van was moving a lot, and that there were kids there late at night at the warehouse. And when the finders member was was pulled over and interviewed in the van, that they were mentioning that they were babysitting diplomats' children. And the officer thought it was very weird because you shouldn't be babysitting, you know, in this warehouse district at night, all these children and why are they all outside and everything like that. But then again, I had uh, finders investigator uh, Henry Skip Clements tell me this before this was ever released. And I could never do anything with it, even though it's in our interview. I could never verify it because I was like, uh, OK, you know, I've had, you're telling me this, but I have nothing else. And then it comes out in this, you know, Washington Metropolitan Police Department, like, uh, uh, incident report, right? That it was the same, uh, group or the same warehouse that was raided, uh, in search for by the Metropolitan Police Department for child pornography. It's in the report. And it was the, the, the Metro Police Department Organized Crime Division. That was investigating the finder's operation. Okay. And so that's extraordinarily suspect, the bare minimum. All right. There was, you know, rental cars. There was expensive luxury cars going in and out of this finder's operation. Washington, D.C. warehouse didn't fit the area. Okay. Were they diplomat cars? I don't know. But that was something that came out the past a uh, year or so from the third FBI vault drop that was straight straight from Henry Skip Clements who investigated the finders in the early to mid 90s and told me that that was what was going on was uh blackmail with children to diplomats to the United States State Department and the finders and that pops up in the Washington uh Metropolitan Police Department memo so yeah. I'd have to assume that's true because he told me that was being investigated back then, and then it was. So that's a pretty big fine, in my opinion. Yeah, I would say that that is a pretty big fine. And I guess before we wrap up, so, I mean, there's obviously some 
inaccurate reporting or at least not reporting all the details in a lot of other people's, you know, version of the Tallahassee incident. And there is, you know, some of these misconceptions, but then it also seems like through your research that, um, some of these suspicions that people had of the finders that, you know, it's not necessarily completely unwarranted to wonder if they were involved with the production of child pornography or the trafficking of children or other, you know, people, um, sex trafficking and, and stuff like that. So I guess maybe as just one of the last questions that I'll ask you Mm -hmm. is that, you know, perhaps there's not a definitive smoking gun that, you know, proves these claims beyond a shadow of a doubt, but would you say that, I don't know. I don't know if I want to ask you because I, I know that, you know, it's clear from your writing and stuff that you, that you really like to back things up with evidence. And I, and I greatly appreciate that. But do you think that all these suspicions that people have are warranted or do you think that there could be some sort of element of disinformation to to these claims or what exactly do you think is going on? Do you think that they were involved with the, the darkest of the claims? I mean, you know, it's obvious that there was animal sacrifice and that they were trying to steer the counterculture and all these different things, which is very nefarious in and of itself. But, you know, some of these, you know, the, the, the darkest of the claims that come when it comes to the finders, I, okay. Uh, I, I do. Um, I do agree with Ramon J. Martinez's report and a lot of the newspaper reporting at the time. I do believe that the nefarious of the nefarious, the dark, tragic things were occurring within the finders. Now, who was involved? Uh, who knew? Who took part of it? I'm not going to make any such claims unless I know for sure. I'm pretty sure Marion Petty was aware of these things. I'm pretty sure he was involved in certain aspects. I will write more about that as more information comes out or as, as I get to it. Um, but do I believe that Ramon J. Martinez's allegations were correct, that there were human trafficking going on, there was child pornography uh, uh, being shot or there, there was pornography being shot at the at the warehouse uh, within Washington DC. Yes, I do believe that was that is true. Now, who all was involved and who wasn't involved? I don't know. Just because someone was a member of the finders, just because someone was a member of the inner circle does not mean that they knew this was going on and does not mean that they took part of this was going on, okay? That they took part in the 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 most abhorrent things of human imagination, okay? But I do believe that happened. I do believe it happened. I do believe the finders operation was involved in, in the most darkest of darkest things. That being said, though... Um, you know, I, and I do believe there are other researchers, whether it's Derek Bros, whether it's George from CabDev.org, and I don't want to speak for them. Uh, if, you know, if, if they say otherwise, I will retract these statements. But I do believe that they agree with me that Ramon J. Martinez, for lack of a better purpose, was mostly accurate and honest in the report that he had wrote. Uh, I have his boss, John Solomon. I think that's his name. On the record, saying that Ramon Martinez was honorable and that his report was accurate. 
take that what you will. Um, and so, yes, I, 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 I do. Uh, but, you know, who was involved? Who knew? Um, you know, were these six finders kids other than themselves molested? You know, I mean, there's, you know, there's a possibility, obviously, that they were not. I don't think they were, but that doesn't mean that other members of the Finders were not up to nefarious things. It just means that they didn't do that with their own specific children, okay? That being said, who did what, who didn't do what, that's why, you know, I don't, you shouldn't, to write in this, I did my best to, to, to you know, try to, to make this known that, you know, members of the Finders operation, other than themselves, you know, they shouldn't be harassed. They, they, we don't know. We don't know for sure, okay, who did what. Unless, you know, through evidence, that can be ascertained with, with, with you know, as much as ability as one can do, right? Um, but, you know, hopefully that answers what, what you were asking me, Luke. Um, do I believe, the, you know, the most darkest, you know, uh, evil uh, reports that were, you know, made within the news media at the time or Ramon J. Martinez's report... Do I believe there was true that there was human tra trafficking, child pornography, pornography being shot? Um, do I believe that members of the Finders operation, uh, per two sources that I have, were taking girls, you know, teenage girls between the ages of 15, 17, 18-year-old plus women, back to the finders operation and guys, you know, you know, g g going there and spreading feminist propaganda, using that to bring them to the operation where they would have orgies with Marion Petty with other members. Well, if it's under, if it's a girl that's under the age of 17, that's statutory rape. I don't care if it was the summer of love. Okay. And if it's a woman over the age of 18, yes, some women, May have consented to it some through, you know, given alcohol or drugs or coercion, coercion to it. Maybe not, which would be rape. Okay. Um, I don't think there's a controversial statement to make. Um, not controversial on this show. <laughs> um, you know, I've heard some people say, well, it's just, it's just a summer of love. It's just a sign of the times, right? And I'm like, really? I'm a conservative Christian. I'm sitting here making the Me Too argument. You know, this is disgusting, you know. Um, but you know, I do believe stuff like that was going on. And so if that was going on, then what about everything else? You know, I know it's, it's, some people would make the argument that it's different, you know, you know, febophilia uh, and pedophilia, right? But to me, once you have that libertine mindset, and you're doing those things, which are abhorrent, whether it's statutory rape or rape, it's a hot skip and a jump. I know you, some people could say that's a slippery slope fallacy argument, but I don't know, man. I mean, you know, if we go based off of what was reported in the media and what was reported by people like, you know, Washington Metro Department, uh, Police Department John Stitcher, or what was written in Toby Terrell's book, The Game Caller, or, you know, what was written in Ramon J. Martinez's report, if we take all of this, I do believe that, yes, that human trafficking may have been occurring, at least a facilitating of human trafficking. Um, and uh, child pornography was being shot. Yeah, I do believe that. I just don't know who was involved 
uh, per se out of the finders and who knew, you know, um, that answers my question. Perfectly. I can't say that for sure. And yeah, that, that answers my question perfectly. And I appreciate you answering it and answering it carefully. Cause the last thing that I'd want to do on this show is level some sort of accusation against anybody that, that, that isn't true. And, um, and I know that as a researcher that you always do a great job of backing up your claims with evidence. And so I hope I didn't put you too much on the spot. Oh, no, there. not at all. Okay. Mm, no, perfect. no, you didn't. Um, yeah, no, but... I, and I've, tried, I've tried to make that known through my work, um, you know, and, and I know I know that the, the finders, a lot of the finders members know I'm writing this book. They know of my work. They don't necessarily like me. Um, I don't dislike you. I'd like to hear from you if you're willing to talk to me, but I'm not going to, you know, um, I went in with what I could prove and what I can prove the more I research is the more that they are that Ramon J. Martinez's report was right. Yeah. And I'll leave it at that. Okay. Well, perfect. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a, a great explanation. And, you know, you were mentioning a slippery slope. I would say that the actual slippery slope is, you know, people saying that, Oh, it's okay. Cause it was the summer of love or making the differentiation between, you know, uh, uh, 16 year olds and you know people younger or something like that so no i appreciate you being um so candid and you're you're not gonna offend me with 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 any of that stuff i think that we see completely eye to eye on that no, subject. No, i know brother i there's there's just certain people where that has been sadly the case um and uh there, there you know there has been also you know fellow researchers and and you know people such as yourself and and people that i admire that of course obviously will come right out and say no that's abhorrent and wrong uh you know it's just <sighs> i don't see how anybody can justify and rationalize it i just don't i just don't yeah no i i, I don't either but unfortunately there are people who who do try to do such things, even when you're talking about things that are as heinous as the things that have been discussed, just wrap up a few things. But is there anything else that you want to talk about before we kind of close out the show? You can find me. We've read uh, on Substack. We read the document. Should I say we underscore read on Twitter. We read the documents on Odyssey. Uh, I do a Christian podcast. My fellow brother in Christ, Jeremy Stone, by their fruits. Um, you can find me the Kingdom Productions Network with Jeremy Anderson. Excuse me. Um, uh, I think that's I, I'm really bad at plugging myself. <laughs> uh, um, but I definitely it's it's been great conversation, Luke. Thank you for. For, for having me on things absurd brother and god bless anybody who's listening and um you know i hopefully i'll have more on the finders in the future i'm still writing and still researching and if you have anything you email me we were the documents at protonmail.com i'll definitely take a look at it um and uh yeah thank you for having me on yeah thank you for coming on and i am going to link everything down below so that way you guys can all check out john brisson's work and god bless you man for all the great research